Well, dear friends, I invite you to take your copy of the Scripture and turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. We're going to be reading a lengthy section, verses 1 through 23, at least the first portion of verse 23. And before we come to read God's Word together, let us ask the Lord to help us understand. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to sit as needy sinners longing to be instructed at the feet of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that one thing is necessary, and that is for us to hear from You. Lord, we pray that You would take Your Word and seal it to our hearts. Would You write Your eternal truth upon us? And would You use this particular passage to enlighten our eyes with Christ and how we should live to His honor. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of Scripture? Acts 10, beginning in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. While they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who is called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So. He invited them in to be his guests. Thus far, the word of the Lord. Brethren, please be seated. 
Well, as we have walked together in Luke's narrative of King Jesus advancing the Gospels, we have, advancing the Gospels specifically, we've touched on Gentiles receiving Christ several times. We've seen the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. We have seen Peter's visit to Joppa and Tabitha being raised from the dead. But those are only the first drips of what is about to be a deluge of gospel mercy to the Gentiles. And that flood really begins in our passage with Cornelius. Now, Peter and the other apostles never doubted that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. Isaiah and the Psalms had spoken about it frequently. Jesus himself had ministered to Gentiles like the Gerizim demoniac. And then, of course, there was the Great Commission that they were to take the gospel to all the nations. Yet there are several significant practical questions about how the gospel can go to Gentiles. How could these unclean people, often despised as dogs, actually receive the gospel? How could the uncircumcised be accepted? How could Jew and Gentile share Christ with one another when they won't even share food with one another? These are major issues and they signal to us significant things that make the new covenant new. Now, indulge me just a minute as I try to explain a great transition that's happening as we move to the new covenant. In the old covenant, specifically with the Mosaic law, the Lord put his children under a guardianship. They were given the elementary principles of the law as those being tutored, which served to protect them. It was to keep them from evil influences like the Egyptians or the Canaanites. So God gave laws to reinforce that Israel was set apart or holy to the Lord. One of those laws, actually a whole collection of them, pertained to food, what is clean and unclean. Now, it's not that food is inherently evil in any way. God was teaching His people through the dietary laws that they are to be different, set apart, holy to the Lord. That's a principle, brethren, that still holds today. But in the new covenant, the ceremonial law, the dietary restrictions, cease. They cease like the sacrificial system because Jesus has died to save us, cleansing us, and Jesus has poured out His Spirit upon us to seal us as the holy people of God. Those laws are therefore fulfilled. Well, needless to say, if you're a Jew, this is a huge change. Your whole life has been lived eating certain things and only being around those who are clean. And the Jews, missing the spiritual nature of the law, often drew the wrong conclusions about these distinctions. They thought of themselves as superior to the Gentiles. That's why they called them dogs. And they thought their outward actions, like ceremonial hand-washing, actually made them holy. This comes up in Jesus' ministry in Mark 5, where they ask Him, why don't your disciples wash their hands? Jesus says, look, it's not something on the outside that can make you unclean on the inside. We can't be defiled by something unclean. Defilement comes from within, from our hearts. And in saying this, Mark 7.19, Jesus declared all foods clean. Mark is saying this in hindsight. Peter is going to have to learn it in real time in our text. 
being the people of God is not about what you eat or what you wear or a certain mark in the flesh. Being the people of God is about receiving and resting on Christ alone for salvation. And Peter's got to gain a new perspective by grace. Now that's a lengthy introduction, but let's move on to see the details. Note five things with me as we make our way through the text. First, a devout life in verses 1 and 2. Luke moves us again to a new city, to Caesarea. It's 30 miles up the Mediterranean coast from Joppa. It was a predominantly Gentile region and the administrative center of the Roman province in Judea. Now in Acts 8, Philip had gone as far as Caesarea with the gospel. But the man we here meet, Cornelius, hasn't heard anything from Philip. Who is Cornelius? Well, he is a centurion of the Italian cohort. The Italian cohort is like an auxiliary military unit. Think of a militia that would help the city in a time of need. That's the sense. A cohort had between 100 and 600 guys, and Cornelius is the captain. Yet a Roman hanging around a bunch of soldiers is not the kind of guy we expect to be religious. But we read, verse 2, he's a devout man who feared God with all his household. Now the language of a God-fearer is used throughout the book of Acts as someone who is a Gentile, but yet has an attachment to the God of Israel. He's not a Jew in full, but he's linked himself to the Jews. He would go to synagogue. He would hear the Old Testament preached. He would be looking for the Messiah as revealed in the Scriptures. And he would be striving to live by the general ethical principles of God's law. He has reverence for the one true God, which is a remarkable display of grace Cornelius doesn't yet know that Jesus is the Christ, but he's looking for the Christ and he's taking God's word into his heart and he's clearly been awakened by grace to his sin and his need for a savior. He is a believer in so far as he understands the Old Testament and the proof of grace in his life is evidenced in what he does. He's leading his household to fear God his wife, his children, his servants. He's giving alms generously. And end of verse 2, he prayed continually to God. Now just a brief thing here about Cornelius. He clearly hasn't come yet to an understanding of Jesus Christ. But God's grace is working in this man. And what does God's grace always do in the lives of His people? It always moves us to fear the Lord. Just think of the Scripture reading with Noah. Uh, As John previewed it for us, the last verse of last week, Genesis 6-8, Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then what's the very next verse which we started out with this week? Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. God's grace drew him near that he would fear the Lord and follow Him. And it leads to a life of devotion. Yes, God's people have ups and downs in our devotion, but the grace that saves us always trains us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. That's what's happening in Cornelius' life. Brethren, that's what's happening in our lives. Are we conscious that God's amazing grace has taken hold of us to make us understand the truth and give us faith And then, in the fear of the Lord, 
We devote ourselves to Him, eager to do good works. Cornelius is a model to us of piety. But then we see in the second place, detailed sovereignty in this story. In the midst of Cornelius' prayer on a particular day, in verse 3, it was about the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. by the way we would say it. And it corresponds to the Jewish seasons of prayer linked here to the time of the evening sacrifice at the temple. He's a long way away from the temple. But he's praying like a Jew would in view of that sacrifice at the temple. And that alone is significant. He's understanding, I can't approach God without a sacrifice to cover my sin. So he's praying with thanksgiving that he can approach the Lord. And then suddenly he has a vision. Verse 3, an angel of God came to address him. Cornelius, the angel said. Don't miss that personal address. God knows His people by name. God doesn't merely have a general care for believers. His care, His attention to us, His directions for us are very specific. They're tailor-made. And that's not just for the important people like God calling to Abraham in the past or God calling to Saul of Tarsus when He was going to convert him and make him big in the church, we might say. The Lord knows this man's name in some populous Gentile city while he's still on the outside of the gathering of the New Testament church. So look at God's sovereignty and His care. See His knowledge of His people. And then like with so many people in the Bible who meet an angel, they don't say, hey, why don't you pull up a chair and let's have a conversation about supernatural things. No, he's immediately struck with fear. He stared at the angel in terror and said, what is it, Lord? Confrontation with the supernatural is overwhelming. Again, we constantly see this in the Bible. People see the supernatural and they're immediately reminded, I'm a man of flesh and I'm a sinner and I'm meeting a holy messenger of God. And these happen to be also the people who go strike sinners down in very significant places in Scripture. So there's fear, but the angel comes with a word of grace. Verse 4, the angel said to him, Cornelius, your, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. The sense is, Cornelius, God sees your devotion. He sees your acts of service in response to His mercy. The way you live rises to God like a memorial offering. That's sacrificial language. In other words, Cornelius, your life is a sacrifice to God, and I see it. Brethren, what a comfort it is to know that while we're called to live as a living sacrifice to the Lord, Romans 12, 1 and 2, the Lord sees our labors. The Lord sees our devotion. Paul will talk about this principle with the Philippians. And he'll say, the offering that you give to support me in gospel ministry is a fragrant offering before God. God sees your sacrifice and He blesses you. Or Paul will talk about himself, how he pours himself out as a drink offering to God. In thankfulness to you, Lord, I give myself as an expression of devotion. You demand my life, my soul, and my all. And yet you bless me for serving you. Well, that's occurring with Cornelius. This godly believer living according to the Old Testament still is the Lord's pleased with him. 
And now the Lord is going to draw him in, give him more information about the Christ. He's going to bring him to the knowledge of Jesus. Well, how's Cornelius going to hear of Christ and learn of the gospel? The angel could just tell him, right? Wouldn't that make things faster? The Lord Jesus could reveal from heaven and Christ could actually talk to him like he did with Saul of Tarsus, right? Well, both of those things could happen, but that's not how God ordinarily works. Now, you could quickly say, look, Pastor David, nothing ordinary is happening in this passage. An angel is talking to Cornelius. Well, that's true. But amidst the extraordinary vision, the Lord is still going to teach Cornelius the gospel in an ordinary way. How can Cornelius call on Jesus as Lord if he hasn't heard of what Jesus has done and who Jesus is? And then how can he hear how, without a preacher preaching it to him? And how can a preacher come to Cornelius unless a preacher is sent? What do you think is going to happen here? The Lord is going to send Peter to preach to Cornelius. Now, you'll, you'll get to the preaching next week. But already, brothers and sisters, we're seeing something very significant about how God works. How does the Lord bring the gospel to people? He sends a preacher to declare the word. What we're doing this morning as the gospel is being preached before you is not the tradition of men. This is Christ's way. Paul called it people being saved through the foolishness of what's preached. We, we look like a bunch of fools to the world. that You would come and sit and hear someone preach. But this is God's way. He blesses weakness of having His Word declared that souls might be saved. And then the vision to Cornelius is going to lay out the specifics. And don't miss the details here of the sovereignty of God. Cornelius is told, verse 5, send men to Joppa, bring one Simon who is called Peter. Go to this exact town, find this exact guy, and let me give you his name, not just his Hebrew name, Simon, but his Jewish name, because you're a bunch of, I mean, your Greek name, because you're a bunch of Greek people. So there's no confusion. You know it's Simon who is called Peter. And then the Lord doesn't just tell Cornelius or the guys he'll send a name with no address. Can you imagine going to a city to find someone with no address? No, I'll tell you exactly where he is. Verse 6, he is lodging with one called Simon, a tanner, who is by the sea. He has a house right on the sea. Brethren, do you see the meticulous control of the Lord right here? It's similar to the scenes, isn't it, where Jesus sends his apostles to go get a donkey's colt tied up in a certain spot. And let me tell you what to say to them when they start asking you questions. Or who to follow and where to go so you can prepare for the Last Supper that we're going to share together in an upper room. Our Lord's control isn't a general governance without the details. Like a CEO in a company who lays out a vision, but he doesn't know the guys in middle management and what they're doing. That's not how the Lord runs the world. Our Lord rules with precise control so that even when a sparrow falls to the ground, it's not apart from His will. And the hairs of our head are all numbered. He knows our tears our weaknesses, our gifts, our callings. He knows where we are. He knows what we need. And He gives us exactly what we need. He graciously rules with specifics to provide the truth we need at the moment we need it. Now, we're not receiving visions telling us about a particular man we need to meet, his name, and where he's staying. But brethren, the Lord is showing us His sovereignty 
by fulfilling specific prophecy over and over that we can see. He shows His care for us by answering our particular prayers, by giving us the wisdom that we ask for when we need that wisdom, by bringing the Gospel particularly to our hearts. And then we know He's King as He rules all things together and works it for our good. You can rest secure with a God like this. Knowing your names are inscribed on the palms of His hands, He'll never forget you. He knows exactly what you need. He can be trusted. So see His sovereign detail guiding. And then third we see in the text, direct obedience. So Cornelius is given a vision, particular directions about the stuff he's supposed to do, and how does he respond? He obeys immediately. After the angel left him, verse 7, he calls two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended to him. It's interesting, there's another devout man, a believer it seems, waiting on further information. He trusts this guy and he tells them everything the angel said. And then he sends them on to Joppa. Now verse 9 will tell us that by the next day, they're already approaching the city. And as they approach, it's the time when Peter has gone up on the rooftop to pray at the sixth hour, which is noon. Now, you've got to do a little math with me. All right? This is something we could easily skip, but it really makes the point. What does it mean as we think about the timing of all this? Well, again, Joppa is 30 miles south of Caesarea. So even if you're traveling on horseback, you're talking about the edge of what a healthy horse could do in a day. It's like an eight to ten hour horseback riding trip. Well, so what? Well, Cornelius had a vision about 3 p.m., told his guys about it, sent them off, and then by noon the next day, how many hours has that been? 3 p.m., yeah, you're, you're crunching the numbers. It hasn't been a full 24 hours yet, but the guys, when Peter is praying, they're already showing up. What does that tell us? When did they leave? You know, we'll get to that maybe next week. They left immediately. We're not given the specifics. Was the immediately leaving, leaving and going now, riding until nightfall, then getting up early in the morning and going the rest of the way? Was it getting up before dawn at something like 3 a.m. and then riding all day until they got there? We don't know. But what we do know is Cornelius is serious about obeying God. Now, obviously, brethren, these are unique circumstances. We're not having angels coming to us and telling us specific things to do. God is not telling you to build a boat right now. right? The Lord is not telling you by an angel in a dream, take your wife and your baby and get to Egypt like He did with Joseph and having to escape the attacks of wicked men. But what we're seeing here is a principle. And the principle is giving heed to the Lord immediately. Is that how we aim to live? When the Lord is gracious to bring the truth of His living, active Word to bear upon our soul, when it rebukes us or corrects us, do we give ourselves to obedience? Is our devotion lacking in sincerity because we say we love the Lord Jesus Christ, but when He convicts us about a pattern of sin and a change we need to make, we hesitate or we ignore it? Are we striving to do what the Lord commands? Yes, we all fail, beloved. But we must be a people who care about obeying God. That's how Christ's people live. 
Jesus says what marks his people is that he's a shepherd who calls his sheep. And what do they do? They follow him. They hear his voice and follow him. Is that what we're doing? Cornelius is that kind of man. Then we see fourthly, a divine vision. So before the men from Cornelius arrive, Peter has gone up on the rooftop to pray. Again, it's the sixth hour, it's about noon. Peter, like Cornelius, has adopted the traditional Jewish seasons of prayer, praying at morning, noon, and night. You see this with David in Psalm 55. You see it with Daniel in the whole lion's den episode. He keeps praying three times a day. He won't stop his devotion. Now, the Bible nowhere commands us to pray specifically at morning, noon, and night. But what are we seeing, both with Cornelius, a God-fearer, and Peter, a godly man? We're seeing their people of prayer. Are we people of prayer? This is what God's people do. Do you remember the marker of how Ananias was to know that Saul of Tarsus had been changed? What is he going to find him doing? Behold, he's praying. It's true. Prayer can be formulaic. It can be a rote thing where we pray with no heart. Lips to praise, a heart fall away. But it could be that we have not because we ask not. It could be we're struggling mightily in temptation because we're not doing what Jesus said. Keep watching and praying that you won't fall into temptation. It could be we've never developed a discipline of prayer. But Colossians 4.2 says, Be devoted, y'all to prayer. Well, apparently, during Peter's season of prayer, he became hungry and he couldn't hit the fridge for the leftover chicken from yesterday's church picnic. So, he had to wait for stuff to be made. And while he was waiting, it appears he returns to prayer, verse 10, and he falls into a trance. Now, we might think the whole comment about Peter being hungry is superfluous information, but the hunger turns out to be related to the vision. Verse 11, the heavens are opened. And something like a great sheet is descending and being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And then in the sheet, verse 12, notice, are all kinds of animals. That word for animals means the four-footed variety. And reptiles and birds of the air. This echoes day five and six of creation. Land animals, animals flying around. And also the two-by-two animals that are getting in Noah's boat. It significantly echoes those passages because we're shown a variety of animals without distinction to clean and unclean. And then in view of his hunger, Peter is given a divine command. A voice comes and says, verse 13, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now Peter recognizes a divine voice is speaking to him, but he says, and I quote, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. You know, it's funny, sort of funny, that Peter has a pattern of telling the Lord that he's got it wrong. Jesus starts talking about suffering, and what does Peter do? He rebukes Jesus. Far be it from you, Lord. Jesus starts talking about the disciples falling away when the events of Good Friday really begin, being seized by a mob, dragged away. Peter says, even if they do that, I will not. Jesus says, look, Peter, even this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. What does Peter say? No way, I'll never do that. This response is in the same spirit. Unfiltered emotionalism. Impulsiveness without logical thought. 
Get yourself together, Lord. I have never eaten anything unclean. Don't be ridiculous. Now, Peter talks to the Lord as if the Lord has lost his mind. Now, it's not good to be telling Jesus that he's got it wrong. We can sort of laugh at Peter's silliness, but on deeper reflection, don't we see this is not silly at all? That he's talking back to the sovereign Lord? How can Peter be so brazen, so rash and unthoughtful of the situation? Well, maybe some of us this morning who have foot and mouth disease, maybe we can relate. We can see ourselves in Peter and we recognize that our response, our first response, is often very poor and not acting according to faith. In fact, there are times when the professing people of Christ just don't like what the Lord says. And we tell Him He's got it wrong. Think of how people do this with the ethics of Christ, telling Him that His boundary lines are drawn in the wrong place. That Jesus can't comment on your sexual ethics and tell you who can be in your bed. Yes, He can. Jesus can't tell me about setting apart one day in seven for His worship and the whole day. Yes, He can. You know, I don't really have to take that, seri that seriously when Jesus talks about not bearing false witness because if somebody's asking me a hard question, I can just sort of kind of not tell them the truth. No, you can't. You can't talk back to the Lord. You, may, you need to do what He says. What about worship? You know, Jesus should just receive the worship that I give Him however I want to give it. He should be glad I'm giving it to Him. No, brethren. You worship by what Jesus says. We talk back to the Lord too. Sometimes we think we have better ideas than Christ. This needs to get our attention. Brethren, we need to learn from Peter's failure here and his repeated failures that we should be quick to listen and slow to speak. And in context, that verse is really talking about receiving Scripture. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. There should be a willingness to be shaped by the Word. Lord, help me to understand it. And yet what should truly amaze us here is that after Peter acts like a fool, what happens? Look at verse 15. And the voice came to him again a second time. What grace. Look at the patience of our Lord to put up with Peter, to push aside his folly and reveal the message again. This is a monumental change about the whole clean-unclean thing, and the Lord understands that. It rocks Peter's world. So the Lord is bearing with Peter, and He tells him, what God has made clean, do not call common. In other words, Peter, your judgment is off. Think again. You need to listen and consider in light of the new age, the arrival of the kingdom of God in fullness in Jesus Christ. Peter, don't act like you understand everything about the fullness of time, the arrival of the last days. Just as your perceptions about the relationship between glory and suffering were wrong, you could think about things in a wrong way. So here again, Peter. Now, as to the content of the message, if all of God's creatures are clean and none are common or defiled, what does that mean? What well, means the old covenant designations of which food was a part that separated Jew from Gentile have fallen away? Or as Paul will later put it, 
the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been abolished. Though Jews would interact with a Gentile if it was on a Jew's terms, they would never have fellowship with a Gentile on Gentile turf. Who knows if the Gentile is cooking his food in a kosher way? So it became a matter of practice that a Jew just avoided Gentiles. Well, Peter's now being redirected by the Lord. And what are the implications for the gospel for this issue as the gospel goes to Gentiles, where they're massive? It's going to create a great controversy in the church over the next several chapters, when eventually we'll get to Acts 15, and some are saying, some Jews, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to get circumcised. Salvation is Jesus plus circumcision. For Peter right here, it's Jesus plus the dietary laws. What is the Lord doing? He's saying there is no plus, Peter. It's just Christ. This vision says Christ determines who is clean. And He has the right to change the boundaries. Don't you understand, Peter? The laws given by Moses about food, they were temporary in nature. They they weren't there prior to Moses giving them. And then even as the Lord communicates this a second time, and Peter, though we don't hear him talking back a second time, he clearly doesn't get it because we're told that this happened, verse 16, three times. The Lord's being incredibly patient with Peter, and Peter is being incredibly stubborn. In verse 17, he's still inwardly perplexed as to what it all means. But the threefold repetition says at least two things. It says, one, the thing is fixed. When God repeats Himself, it's a matter of firmness. And second, it's about the Lord asserting His authority. No man can contradict what the Lord declares. The Lord is in charge. Well, as Peter is pondering the whole matter at just the right time, lastly see the Gentiles show up and we get divine guidance. Just as the threefold vision has ended, verse 17, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having found the right house, stood at the gate and asked for Peter. And then Peter gets more divine help. You would think after three times seeing a vision, Peter would be locked in. He isn't. Verse 19, while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them, note this, without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter's been hesitating the whole time, but now with the Spirit constraining him, he moves. Peter accepts the message. He goes down. He asks the fellows, why are you guys looking for me? They highlight Cornelius, the God-fearing man, what happened, an angel appeared to him. And then for the first time, we hear maybe the most significant piece of all. The angel told Cornelius to go get Peter, into verse 22, to hear what you have to say. Brethren, what is it that Peter has to say? He has a message of Christ to communicate the death and resurrection of Jesus and to call people to repent and believe. Because how does the Lord create faith in His people? Faith comes by hearing. In hearing the Word of Christ, Peter is the agent to proclaim Christ's Word. So they're going to hear and believe. And Peter's being told, these unclean Gentiles, they can be fellow members of God's house together with the Jews. Well, this is the moment of truth. Will Peter see that the Lord is blowing up his categories and receive these men? And then we read verse 23, 
He invited them to be His guests. Here the Jew is receiving Gentiles. Now it's not yet quite extraordinary because a Jew could receive a Gentile as long as it's on the Jewish terms. I'm going to make sure everything's kosher. But it's a little preview of what we're about to see that Peter will go with these men. Brethren, what's the totality of the lesson? It's this. There are no barriers that keep people from the gospel. There are no barriers that keep people from the gospel. We don't cease to be a people with distinctions. We are either Jew or Gentile. We are either slave or free. We are either male or female. And I don't care what the world says, you can't change that stuff. But these distinctions, while they hold, will not stop fellowship with Jesus Christ. We share one Lord, one faith, one baptism, standing upon one apostolic gospel, the gospel of Christ. All of us are united by the blood of Christ. The church will be a community like the world has never seen. A people who have apparently nothing in common from different ethnicities, different geographical regions, different socioeconomic status, and yet the Lord will take them and bring them together as one man in Christ. What a beautiful thing that is. And here we are, brethren, as Gentiles. We should praise God for this scene. We don't have to obey the dietary law. We don't have to go through the fast and feasts of the Old Testament. We don't have to make sure the length of the hair at our temple is just right. And we get to eat bacon. Christ has banished these outer barriers. And we, from all these different backgrounds, can have unity in the gospel by the grace of God if we repent of sin, recognize that Christ is the Savior, and rest in Him alone. Is that what you're doing this morning? You cannot have unity with the people of God if you don't repent and rest in Jesus Christ. And then in this text, significantly, and I'll close with this thought, how is this unity seen? How is the unity on display for us? It's seen in hospitality. Surely that is significant. And we shouldn't miss it. Are we ready to share intimate fellowship with one another? Do we have this kind of deep relationship with one another? If we're one body, do we come together to welcome one another and serve one another? That is how it should be. What was the early church doing? They were breaking bread together in their homes. I know we live in a disconnected society in the 21st century in the West, but that is not godly. We're to be an attached people who evidence our love and welcoming of one another by willingly receiving each other into our homes. It shows, I welcome you as Christ welcomes you. And that's what Peter is modeling for us. We'll see it more next week in a glorious way. But can't you already see the beauty of the gospel? That we could be so different and the Lord could make us one people, cleansing us all by His blood. What amazing grace. Brother, let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we do come before You and we stand in awe of the way that You work, how You use the weakness of men proclaiming a message that You would have us declare Christ, His death and resurrection and call for repentance and faith 
and You awaken us to faith by the power of Your Word. Lord, we pray that our hearts even today would be awakened to faith and that we would manifest our unity together, that we would love one another and welcome one another, and that this church would be known as a place of great love and great attachment as we receive each other into homes and encourage each other in the Lord. Thank You, O Lord, for taking us the Gentile dogs and making us clean through the death and resurrection of Christ. Cause that to make us want to live to You and to be devout in Your service. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Well, we're going to stand and sing our hymn of response, which is a hymn about Egyptian...